I'm Amy Poppinga, the co-director of the Pietas Honors Program. And I'm Sam Mulberry, the co-director of the Pietas Honors Program. And we want to thank you for coming to the second of our year-long, we have a series of colloquium where we have four events a year um, that center around um, an academic question, and also it's a personal question as well. And so this is our second uh, series, or our second event for the series of the year, and we always have a theme for the year, and this year as our theme, we chose the question, what is beauty? So um, when we first started to advertise this event, we started to receive questions saying, why aren't there artists on this panel? Why are you not asking artists um, the question of what is beauty and there's sort of two uh, answers for that the the um, bigger answer is that we are actually building towards the events that we're having in the spring where we're basically going to be featuring exclusively artists so um, all of the events in the spring are going to be highlighting the art department and artists that the art department is sponsoring and having come to Bethel um, and also uh, our does our intention with these faculty panels is actually to get us to think outside of the box a little bit and to bring together faculty of different disciplines with their different disciplinary perspectives, their different personal perspectives, and we think it just makes for a very interesting conversation. So when we started to generate a list of who we would like to invite to have um, come and speak, there were a multitude of different ways that we could go, but we selected these three esteemed people because we were excited not only about what we thought they would have to offer, um, but also the ways in which their answers would um, inform each other's. And so the format for this evening is that uh, each of our speakers will open with just sharing some comments about their own sort of personal response to the question from their disciplinary perspective, kind of help us know better who they are. If you are not familiar with them, we'll introduce them in just a second. But then we'll really turn it to a panel conversation. And we have some questions we've prepared in advance. But we've also provided you with um, some pieces of paper and there's pencil around the room and so if at any point you have a question if you would go ahead and fill that paper out and um, our TAs for the department Ella and Bailey will kind of just be on the lookout and if they see somebody I don't know gently raising a paper or aggressively or aggressively in form of protest or whatever then um, they will come and collect that from you and sneak it up to us and we will do our best to work it into the conversation. Would you like to introduce our guests? Sure. They're going to they're gonna introduce themselves, really. But um, So as, as Amy said, what we're going to do is have them uh, each talk a little bit at the beginning. Um, the three faculty members that we have here are uh, Tim Essenberg from the um, Department of Business and Economics, uh, Sharice Coro from the Department of Psychology, and Nathan Lindquist, Honors Program graduate from the, um, I need to point that out whenever I can, uh, from the <laughs> Department of Physics and Engineering. So uh, we haven't really decided who's going to go yeah. first. So Amy, who should go first? <laughs> well, why don't we, um, Nathan? Why don't you go first? Since you have you have slides, and if we run into some kind of technology glitch, then we can fix it um, while other okay. people are talking. But if you also would just tell us even a little bit of you know autobiographical information and how long you've been at Bethel and things like that. Sure. Should I stay sitting here? Is it it is oh, whatever yeah. you're yeah. comfortable okay. with, or maybe you have a slide that has the autobiographical information. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm Nathan Lindquist. And I uh, am in the physics department, and I teach a bunch of upper-level physics courses. So now I was asked, what's the, what do you see in beauty, or how do you see beauty in your discipline? And I thought, well, I'm a physicist. Uh, nature is beautiful. Math is beautiful. I think I got the easy part, right? This, is, this wasn't too hard to think of something beautiful in, in the discipline. Um, and my research area, I'll talk about it a little bit, but maybe I'll just go right into the, into the slides. I guess I have slides to show. Uh, is this? Ah, I like to start with a quote whenever I'm trying to think about something that's outside of my uh, immediate area of expertise, and I try to link it to what we like to talk about at Bethel in terms of faith and learning integration. How does physics relate to beauty, relate to truth, relate to God? And this, you can't go wrong with C.S. Lewis, and he goes, uh, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So in science, I use this quote to say that all truth is God's truth, even scientific truth. And we can also maybe extend it to say that all beauty is God's beauty. So what we see, we can immediately point back uh, to the beautiful one, right? So this is beautiful to me. Uh, Anybody know what this is? The first time I looked in a microscope, 
I think I fell in love a little bit with some of the things that you get to see that are all around us, that are every day. Uh, but when you look at it really closely, you can really kind of start to see different things that you don't notice before. And I think the more you get to know something, sometimes the more beautiful it becomes. Anyone know what this is? I gave you a clue. It was a microscope, something you probably use every day up in the, in the dining center. It's salt and pepper. This is salt and pepper, right? And just looking at it from a different point of view, you can start to see, wow, salt is, is pretty. I like salt, right? It's, it, it has a visual aesthetic that I, that I appreciate. What about this? This is a zooming in view of a salt crystal, right? And you can see the crystalline forms there, and you get to start to understand why does salt form those shapes? Well, it's the way that the sodium chloride atoms interact with each other and start to form three-dimensional <coughs> patterns. I think that's pretty beautiful. Right? This is something we took in our uh, honors class. We came down and, and did a, a, a session on the scanning electron microscope we have in the physics lab, and this is sand. And, you know, it looks like little golden jewels or something like this, right? But just magnified enough and colored in Photoshop <laughs> to, to make it look, because of course the scanning electron microscope is all black and white. So this to me yeah, is, is beautiful here. A, whoops, a snowflake, all right? Take a picture of it and you see the colors. Now this is something that I, I think is in visual beauty and in the sciences, especially in my field, I do a lot of microscopy. And you just look into a microscope or an electron microscope and you see realms that you never really knew existed before and you can kind of explore and spend a long time just looking at salt, right? You can spend a long time looking at this. And then a snowflake looks like this too. Of course, it's, it's illuminated with light in a certain way uh, and you can see all the different patterns and intricacies in there. Um, my area of research in the physics department actually is how light interacts with micro and nanoscale objects. Right, so what does light do when it's bouncing around inside a single snowflake? Or what does light do as it interacts with something maybe like, this is actually a, a zoomed-in version of a snowflake. Right? What does light do when it interacts with something like this? Um, this is, a, this is, this is a, a butterfly wing. And if you zoom in really close, you can see the scales on there. And the reason that a butterfly wing gets its colors, you know, the beautiful display of iridescence and all the different colors that are shimmering and shining as it flies, is because of these little scales. And each scale will reflect perfectly different colors of light uh, at various particular spots in, this, in the scale. And it's actually due to the very small nanostructures that are on the wing. Right. If you just ground up a butterfly wing and made a paste out of it or something like that, it would just be brown. It wouldn't look like anything. Right? Uh, it's not made out of anything particularly beautiful or colorful. Right? But when you make the butterfly wing into its structure and all the little microscale structures that you can find in there, that's, that's, and they look kind of like that. That's what gives you the colors. Right? So understanding, for me, looking at something very close up kind of zoomed in all the way uh, shows something that, that, that you know, it can reveal a beauty that wouldn't be there just intrinsically. A couple more pictures. This is kind of a man-made version of a butterfly wing. If you can structure materials on that scale, you can make them to display all sorts of colors that, uh, like you want. And even some medieval nanotechnologists knew about this when they would mix different metals into their stained glass windows and they would make micro scale structures out of gold and silver and copper and titanium and nickel and as they mixed their stained glass together they found that they could take a few things that are rather ordinary you know just molten glass that was clear and lumps of different metals maybe just a chunk of copper that probably wasn't a particularly interesting then you mix it together in a certain way and you form these nanostructures that form all the beautiful colors uh, of the rainbow there. So looking at something very close to me uh, definitely has aspects of beauty in it. A couple more slides here. Oh, this is just something that's very amazing, right? And if you think about beauty in the next slide, I'll talk about symmetry a little bit, but this is, this is an individual set. Each dot there each white dot is a single carbon atom. And if you look at something very, very close, you can start to see the actual atomic structure of everything. On this scale, everything looks the same. 
right? You and me, the chair, right? The leaves, everything, everything, everything looks exactly the same when you zoom all the way in like that. And it's only as you start zooming out, zooming out, that you start to see all the individual patterns and the colors and, and, and that emerge out of the atoms, right? So that's a beautiful picture. This, of course, is how light interacts with a very thin layer. It's a soap bubble, right? And as I was looking through pictures of this, I just couldn't kind of, that's Jupiter. It looks almost exactly the same, <laughs> right? So that's beautiful to me. All right, so that's kind of a visual beauty, and I have a, I have a few more here. What about this? All right, what, what is that? That is, well, it's an equation. Maybe that's a little better, <laughs> right? Maybe a little prettier. You can get the curls on the H and the P there. Um, how can that be beautiful, right? This is, this is something that, uh, that is very short. It's very concise. And it's an equation. Maybe some of you are rather afraid of equations, right? And I think we can start talking, and I probably have something in common with the rest of the uh, panel here, that math can be beautiful, right? Uh, in this case, this is a very short equation, right? But it's an equation packed with meaning, right? And for me, that becomes beautiful, right? If something that can be very small, very kind of discreet, packed with meaning. Uh, you, you say um, a poem, right? is a very short group of words, very short sentence, few words like this, but that can describe worlds, right? And just a very short little bit of, of the English language can describe entire universes, right? Uh, in a very short uh, stanza. This, to me, is what this does. This is one of the foundational equations of quantum physics. And what it is, it's the mathematical equivalent of a poem, right? It's a very short description that eventually describes worlds. Right. You have on the left-hand side, wavelength. So this is a wave. On the right-hand side, you have Planck's constant over momentum. So this says, in words, it says a moving object is a wave, which to me is, is an expression that you can't really even wrap your mind around. No one can really understand what quantum physics says, so you have to use the equivalent of a poem, just like you're using a poem to kind of discuss some transcendental beauty of, uh, of love or something like this, right? In physics, you can't really describe things in words or experience. You have to describe them with a poem. So in that sense, a mathematical equation can be beautiful as well. One more. Yeah. Sometimes they're so beautiful, you put them on t-shirts, right? Physicists like, I have a few t-shirts with equations on them. And our physics majors like to do this too. So, and God said that, and then there was light. All right, these are the equations that describe what optics and, and light does. All right, last, last point here. Um, here's a poem. We were talking about math being a poem. This is an actual poem, and I'm not, a, I'm not a poet, but sometimes I see a poem that I think I really like. And this one is from the 1700s, William Blake, and it's still only the first stanza to his poem, The Tiger, and it says, Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? And the phrase fearful symmetry kind of caught my eye because in physics and in, in sciences, in physics in particular, in the theoretical physics realm, what drives physical discovery and physical law is the idea of symmetry. Right? So we have these symmetries that we look for in nature, and if we can describe them with an equation, then we can come up with a universal constant or a universal law of physics. For example, the symmetry of space translation being the same. Or if I take an experiment and I do it over here, I should get the same result if I do it over there. That's a type of symmetry, right? Things are the same here as they are over there. Just writing that down as an equation gives you conservation of energy, right? which I think is, you know, it's, it's even more fundamental, the symmetry or the beauty behind it is even more fundamental than the conservation of energy, right? which we think of as being kind of one of the most foundational and, and fundamental laws in all of science, right? Conservation of energy, you say that. That's where you usually start. But there's something even below that, which is the symmetry of, you know, I can do an experiment here, and I can do an experiment here, and it should be the same. Right? There's other ones, like I can do an experiment here and now, and I can do another one in 10 minutes, and I should get the same result. These are also conservation laws related to the conservation of momentum, right? 
which is something that sounds fundamental, but there's something even more fundamental underneath, which is the symmetry associated with space and time. Right? Or I can do an experiment facing north or an experiment facing east, and I should get the same exact result. Right? This is a symmetry that this is no different than that. And from there comes the law of conservation of angular momentum, if you can write that down as an equation. So even beneath kind of the, the austere and, and simple and beautiful laws of physics, there's something deeper, which is symmetry, which I think is beautiful. So those are some of my things. Uh, and I'll be done because I want to leave it up to uh, next one. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm glad you talked about symmetry because that's a nice segue into what I would like to talk about. Um, so yeah, I'm Sharice from the psychology department and um, I study primarily face processing. Um, a big part of that is face recognition. So I'm very interested in how people recognize faces um, and also when people don't recognize faces, what's going on there um, and how is that working and why is it happening? Um, but a big kind of subfield of the face recognition research is recognition or is research on what makes a face attractive. So oftentimes in my field, beauty is thought of as the perception of attractiveness. Um, and there's been quite a lot of research that's been done to try to conceptualize what makes a particular face more attractive than another. Um, one of those principles is symmetry. Um, so, for example, if you uh, take faces, um, you take a photograph of a face, um, and you ask people to choose between just the regularly pre presented face, or you take just half of the face and then make the other side of it the mirror image of the left, so that it's a perfectly symmetrical face, people perceive the more symmetrical faces as being more beautiful than those that haven't been kind of mirror imaged in that way. <coughs> Um, so in that sense, the principle of symmetry being beautiful applies as well to faces. Um, another interesting component of our perception of beauty in faces um, is the idea, well actually maybe I'll start off, there was historically Galton did, um, presented this idea a long, long time ago that you could take a series of faces and you could sort of mor morph them together to create an average face. And so he had taken these faces um, of criminals with the idea that people had perceived the criminals as being less attractive than non-criminals. So he had taken a series of photos of non-criminals and used this, what was then a new method to morph these faces together to make an average criminal with the idea that this might then be a particularly averse face. But what he found is actually people found the average of the criminals to be much more attractive than any of the individual criminals alone. Um, and this finding has been replicated again and again and again, where if you take the average of many faces, an average face is perceived as being more attractive than a non-average face. And people have extended this idea to the idea that supermodels and some celebrities, people like Brad Pitt, have particularly average-looking faces, um, as opposed to non-models and non-celebrities, and so on and so forth. I don't know if that's, <laughs> I can't say, I, Denzel Washington, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very symmetrical. Yeah, perhaps. Um, and, but that also leads into another point, I think. I'd be curious to know kind of the hormonal aspects of what's going on with Denzel Washington because he has a particularly strong jawline, which is the third point, was that, <laughs> which is that, um, which is the third point in that our perception of beauty also seems to very seems to vary along with hormonal differences between people. So for example, um, women that are perceived as looking very, very young might be perceived as less attractive than someone who maybe looks slightly older. But on the other hand, somebody who has kind of exceeded the threshold for age is, is perceived as less attractive than somebody, again, that's slightly younger. Um, which the proposition there has been that this has been related to fertility in some way. If someone looks too young, then it's likely that maybe they're not a fertile age and therefore their per your perception of attractiveness in that person um, is reduced. On the other hand, if they appear to be too old, then that might affect your perception of attractiveness as well because they might have aged out of an age of fertility. Um, similarly with 
men, testosterone seems to play um, a role in their perception of attractiveness as well. So men who are higher in testosterone tend to have features that are typically associated with attractiveness, strong cheekbones and bushy eyebrows and things like that. Um, yeah. So anyways, kind of three main principles that it contribute have been contributed to the idea of what makes a particular face attractive. Um, and what I personally find interesting about that and the, and the approach that the field of kind of face perception has taken is that it seems the approach is to try to figure out what is universally attractive as opposed to the individual differences behind people. Um, so what will be interesting, I think, going forward is seeing to what degree do we eventually say, okay, well, here's are some underlying principles of attractiveness of faces, um, and then go into kind of the more individual differences of what makes one person look more or less attractive than another to one particular human being versus a different human being. Uh, Tim Esselberg in economics, just to remind you. And <clears throat> so I asked to make sure that if I were to come, I could say whatever I wanted. And I was given permission to do that. <laughs> Not that that would actually matter, but it's always nice to have it. And um, so one of the reasons why I asked that is I wasn't sure if I needed to address you as an economist or I could just say, here are some thoughts that I have. And um, economists use lots of mathematics and statistics. And when you see those equations, to me, they're beautiful. But that's not what I'm going to talk about. Um, I decided that I would talk about um, beauty, I don't know, more from a humanities perspective, although I have no expertise uh, in that. Um, so it sort of goes like this. And I've... I, typed out things because I want to read some sentences and some paragraphs that I consider to be beautiful. But a little introduction here. So there's a uh, short story written by J.R.R. Tolkien called Leaf by Niggle, but I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, obviously, I lack the perspective and expertise to be a literary critic on the short story, so I'm not going to do that. However, one person that I read in terms of interpreting it, I liked a lot, which basically goes like this. So here's this guy. He wants to paint a tree and make it beautiful and really perfect it. But then life gets in the way, and then he dies. But the cool thing is that his work that he started here, though never perfected, somehow becomes perfected in the next life. And I think that's really cool. And even though, yes, I am an economist, there's part of me that I'd like to be an artist. It's just I'm no good at traditional art. I actually took a course in college. I literally got an F in studio art. Um, I got an A in art history, so I got a C in the class. It was half and half. Um, but so to me in my quieter moments, what I would want to sort of be able to do is I, I do actually want to think of myself as an artist, but not maybe in the traditional way. And I want to be able to sort of um, create things um, that live beyond me. So as um, one person told me once here is that is um, you really want to be able to live your life for that which outlasts it. Uh, and then the second, which is more maybe particular to what we're doing, is beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So I'm going to give you some sentences and some um, paragraphs they're beautiful because they're beautiful to me because beauty is in the eye of the beholder so here we go oh yeah one more thing um, I want you to know that I associate how it goes joy no I associate beauty with joy and joy with struggle and struggle with meaningfulness so those those link um, for me so here's the first one Nicholas Waltersdorf is my favorite um, philosopher. And um, amongst all the things that I've read of him, uh, I wanted to read this. He gave a, a talk at Calvin College about 10 years ago, and he says, I'm going to show how justice, beauty, worship, and love are fundamentally related to each other. And then uh, get down to the punchline, which is the end of the paper. He says, my conclusion will now be obvious to all of you. 
Treating someone justly, attending to beauty, worshiping God, and falling in love with someone or something are fundamentally alike in that all four of these are ways of acknowledging the worth of something or someone. God is of worth, supreme worth. The world God has created is filled with things of worth. We human beings are creatures of worth, and we are like God in creating things of worth. Justice, beauty, worship, and love are different ways of acknowledging the worth of persons and things. This obviously does not mean that each of us finds each of these ways of acknowledging worth equally important. But what it does mean, and this was beautiful to me, is that the social activists among us are not doing something fundamentally different from what the artists among us are doing. And neither the activists nor the artists are doing something fundamentally different from what we do when we worship God. What it means is that those three, seeking justice, dwelling on beauty, and worshiping God, are fundamentally like being in love with someone or something. The second one is from a theologian, Andrew Sung Park, Korean-American. He wrote a book here. um, I heard him talk in 96 or 97. He wrote a book called The Wounded Heart of God, and he says this. Uh, Han, which is a Korean word, and he defines it now for us. Han can be defined as a critical wound of the heart generated by unjust psychosomatic repression as well as by social, political, and economic and cultural oppression. It is entrenched in the hearts of victims of sin and violence and is expressed through such diverse reactions as sadness, helplessness, hopelessness, resentment, hatred, and will to revenge. Uh, That actually was beautiful to me because it helped me better understand the neighborhood in which I have lived for 28 years. But he goes on to say this, which was harder to swallow, but still very, very beautiful. He says, the church has developed a doctrine of sin and other related theological ideas with the sinner, but not the victim of sin in mind. And then he says, I consider that unchristian. And he goes on to say, if we have something for uh, the perpetrator of sin, we need the healing and resolution of Han for the victims of sin. There needs to be, I guess you could say, a different type of symmetry, but there needs to be a, a balance there. And I think sometimes in our theology and in our practice, we lose that. Um, Emmanuel Katongala uh, is a um, Nigerian, I think, um, um, uh, Catholic priest. Uh, so he's at uh, Notre Dame right now. And then Chris Rice. They wrote a book, Reconciling All Things. Um, In this book, they write the following. Lament is an anguished cry directly to God in hope that the way things are are not the way they have to be. That, to me, is intrinsically a beautiful uh, sentence. Uh, An anguished cry out to God in hope that the way things are is not the way they have to be. And the last one by Baumeister, he's a psychologist, um, I'm going to get myself in trouble here because I really don't know any psychology. But as I understand, he's a positive psychologist. Evidently, psychology got started with what's wrong with people. But there are some good things, too, you know. So there are the positive psychologists. Um, and he, he writes uh, an article here, some key differences between a happy life and a meaningful life. So he writes this. Parents often say, I just want my children to be happy. It's unusual to hear, I just want my children's lives to be meaningful. Yet that's what most of us as adults seem to want for ourselves. We fear meaninglessness. We fret about nihilism of this or that aspect of our culture. When we lose a sense of meaning, we get depressed. Happiness and meaningfulness are important features of a desirable life and are indeed interrelated, but they have different roots and implications. Happiness is mainly about getting what one wants and needs, including from other people or just by using money. In contrast, meaningfulness is linked to doing things that express and reflect the self, and in particular, doing positive things for others. Meaningfulness involves involvements, and listen here because we want meaningful lives, but it's costly. Meaningful involvements increase one's stress, worries, arguments, and anxiety, all of which reduce happiness. Happiness goes with being a taker more than a giver, while meaningfulness is associated with being a giver more than a taker. Whereas happiness is focused on feeling good in the present, meaningfulness integrates past, present, and future, and it sometimes means feeling bad. Past misfortunes reduce present happiness, but they are linked to higher meaningfulness, perhaps uh, 
because uh, people cope with them by finding meaning. And then finally, he says that there are four properties to a meaningful uh, life, and you have to have these in order to to have it purpose, value, or ethics. Um, Efficacy, being able to get to where you want to go, and then a sense of self-worth. And he says more about this, but each of those authors have said something um, that have made me a better person because they've actually added stress to my life. And the stress, when you work it out, though, then you get this associated with, with beauty because there's joy that comes with it. Thanks. There's so many directions that, uh, that I want to go. Um, I, I want to I circle back to uh, Tim had mentioned, you know, beauties in the eye of the beholder, which sort of speaks to the subjectivity of beauty. Um, Charisse, you were talking more about beauty. Like, are there some objective standards of beauty? So, I guess I want to, I want to ask you: Do you think that beauty is is beauty subjective? Can it be quantified? Um, yeah. So, I think at least within the realm of face recognition, there's been this kind of push to try to quantify what makes beauty from a facial way in a facial way. Um, but to expand upon that kind of, I think, more broadly within the field of neuroscience, there's been a, there's been a lot of research, I think, that doesn't take a step towards quantifying it. Um, from the perspective of there's people who have said, can we try to figure out, um, is there an area of the brain, for example, that produces activation um, as a result of beauty? Um, and what, what would that look like and what does it mean? And so they you know, take participants and they present them with... Um, a series of songs, um, a series of paintings, and in one of the studies, actually, mathematical equations. Yeah, I saw that one. Yeah, (laughs) mathematical equations. Um, And then as a result of that, so, you know, put the people in an MRI scanner after they've rated each of these different stimuli. Um, And then what they try to look for is activation that correlates with the individual ratings of beauty, but very much on an individual scale. So they're not trying to see, for example, does everyone rate the same things as beautiful, because I think there's a lot of variability there, but can people, um, can they find an area in the brain that is activated in correlation with the degree of beauty that one perceives? Um, So what's kind of interesting, I think, that came out of that work is not only that there does seem to be kind of a orbital frontal region that seems to activate when you have uh, subjective experience of beauty on an individual scale, um, but also there's there's areas of the brain that seem to activate when you have a, per, uh, a subjective experience of ugly in the other direction, um, and that those are very individually determined. Um, and just as a kind of fun, funny side note, the areas that activate in response to ugly are ones that... Um, are the amygdala, which is very much related to kind of like a negative emotion um, and flight, but also motor cortex, which combined suggests that we're sort of trying to get away from the, from the ugly stimulus. But anyways, I would say that within the, to summarize, within the field of face recognition, there definitely is a drive to try to kind of quantify attractiveness. But outside of that, I would say there's less of an effort to do so. Yeah. Because we don't think that there is or... Maybe. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. It just seems like a question. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, one of the things that um, that you mentioned, Tim, oh, uh, and I'm, I'm going to get the the order wrong, where you said beauty leads to oh, something leads to. Beauty, joy, stress. Yeah. Uh, that. Let me think about like, are there what are things that we misunderstand about beauty? Because because you you started with beauty and went to some places that we might not associate with. Struggle and, and stress maybe aren't things that come to mind when we think about beauty. What are, are there things that we misunderstand when we think about beauty or the beautiful? So I'm not really coming from this. Like I haven't studied this, mm-hmm. but it's just some thoughts I have, which is our culture writ large is focused on things that are attractive and People or things that are attractive are in in mind. It's not a synonym for beauty. Maybe they overlap, but the, it, it, but it doesn't have to be a big overlap, right? Um, so, 
it seems to me we we might have to focus a little bit more in asking ourselves what do we think is a, a beautiful character trait because our culture won't help us with that they'll help us with the facial symmetry and the testosterone and everything else but they're not really going to help us there and so I guess I guess because of my the, the life experiences I've had in the last 28 years some things in my life I had to sort of rethink or refocus on that got me thinking about beauty in, in a different way yep so I, I, I like I've, I've come more to appreciate um, character traits. Mm-hmm. We, we could say they're attractive, but the, it's difficult for me to, to separate, let's put it this way, it's difficult for me to separate joy from struggle. I, th- I, think, I think they just go together. And joy is not happiness. Th- these are two different kinds of things, at least in my mind. Nathan, are the things that we misunderstand about beauty? Misunderstand what? I don't know. I think some people are afraid of math, right? Maybe if you <laughs> you can think about an equation that looks so so giant and and ugly and and so on. Maybe you think it looks ugly, but you know, if you're trying to think about what is beautiful about math, that's that's really kind of hard to hard to pin it on. I, I have a quote by uh, Paul Dirac, who is a famous physicist, and he, he says something like, okay, so, so the idea of symmetry leading to fundamental laws of physics leading then to everything else that we do as a scientist, uh, the symmetry is the fundamental of, of that, and it's interesting that symmetry then is, is associated with attractiveness, and maybe we're just kind of drawn to things that, you know, are fine on one side and on the other, right? Um, so what drove Einstein to find his theories of relativity was a broken symmetry that they couldn't kind of figure out, right? There, there's a symmetry where if you're doing an experiment here, they were not moving, and we do the same experiment on a train, and that train is moving, somehow we try to calculate the energies, and they don't, they don't match up, right? Where we think they should get the same energy, or conservation of energy doesn't really fit, right? So Einstein had to come up with another type of symmetry uh, called the Lorentz transform where you have to factor in relative motion of observers and all this. This led him to think about the, the, the special theory and, the, and later on the general theory of relativity because of a broken symmetry and he wanted the universe to be symmetrical. He needed it to be that way so he forced kind of this idea and it turned out he was right uh, on his math um, to get that. And it's interesting talking about misunderstanding beauty. What, what, what he was trying to do is he was trying to say, I'm going to be holding up beauty into such high regard that I am going to make up this physical law that I don't know exists, but it just has to be so. And he's been quoted as saying, it just must be this way. And if God didn't design the universe this way, he should have, right? <laughs> if he was going to be wrong, <laughs> because he was so attracted to this idea of a symmetrical fundamental. Right? And then uh, Lorentz, or, or Dirac, said this. He, Dirac was one of those guys with the quantum physics equation. Now he said, what makes the theory of relativity so acceptable to physicists, in spite of its going against the principle of simplicity, in common sense, I would also add to there, is its great mathematical beauty. This is a quality which cannot be defined any more than beauty and art can be defined, but which people who study mathematics usually have no difficulty in appreciating. <laughs> Right? So it's like you know good art when you see it. You know good math when you see it, right? Uh, you know good science when you see it, and that's what Paul, said, Paul Dirac said. And he's saying beauty even has to have a, a higher level than common sense. So that kind of goes with another question for you, Nathan, which is was math something that was taught to you as beautiful, or did you experience it as such? Like, do you have a recognition of being excited and, and sort of recognizing that to you math was beautiful? I mean, it is to all of us. That's not my point. But, you know, but, you know, do you? Of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I've only appreciated that more recently. 
Yeah. You know, when you're studying it, physics in grad school or college or something like that, you're so down in the details, it's hard to pull back and, and see what it is. You, you understand it for kind of its utility. I know that math is useful and I can get through it. And I can even solve this equation and feel pretty good about that. But to pull back a little bit and say, wow, uh, why should math actually work at all to describe what's going on out on some distant planet? Right? That, to me, is mysterious. And, of course, there's a lot of beauty and mystery. They're kind of tied together as well. So I, I think I've only really started to appreciate that recently in terms of talking about math as being beautiful. And you can say that to, my, to your students and stuff, too, but I don't know if they believe it until they really kind of get the experience of coming out the other end of a PhD or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, we, if we look back to you know, even ancient philosophy, the, the, the transcendental values of truth, beauty, goodness, is there a relationship in your mind between beauty and truth or between beauty and goodness? That's for any of you. <laughs> Anybody, yeah. Truth, certainly, I'd say, because that's, that's what science is after. I'm going to agree with that. However, I'm going to counter that with of that's what I would hope that we would we would be. Um, but I think there's there's quite a lot to show that we do associate things as good as beautiful. Um, from the from the perspective of um, people who are viewed as being um, like I said, criminals are thought to be less beautiful. Um, people who have kind of face deformities are thought of as being less good and also less beautiful. Um, from the perspective of if you tell somebody that, oh, here's a painting, um, this particular painting, what is hanging in such and such gallery people will describe that painting as being more beautiful than if you told them that it's a computer-generated thing that's not hanging in a gallery somewhere, which suggests that people are in some ways equating the goodness of it with their perception of beauty. So as much as I very, as I very much personally view truth as something that's very beautiful, um, I think humans, maybe almost to a point of a flaw, also view good as beautiful. So the, the world that um, economists study is, at least for me, very different than the world that Nathan Lindquist studies. And that is that the, the very limited understanding that I know the, the sort of the physical universe or whatever is that its properties or understanding, like he said, you can study this 10 minutes from now you could you know this kind of thing but the social world is constantly evolving and i don't mean evolutionary kind of thing i just mean it changes so if you did statistical analysis in one situation and you waited 10 years you're not going to get the same statistical equation with coefficients and you know what is statistically say it, it, it changes and um so I don't, I don't have the kind of, uh, I have difficulty when I think about the social side of things is that there's this, this truth that I'm after. And the more statistical analysis that I do, the more mathematical kind of thing I'm going to eventually discover. I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical of that. And that's probably what biased what I had to say um, today, which is not directly out of my discipline. I'll say that. Do you think that beauty is found? I realize I, I write a lot of questions for first-year students, so they're very binary. So I apologize for that. But do you think beauty is found in complexity or simplicity? That's a false dichotomy. Okay, I, you're supposed to say both, right? But some of you are supposed to talk about complexity, some simplicity, and <laughs> then it becomes a good question, right? How about how about a? Uh, fractal. Anyone see a fractal? That's a mathematical object, right? You can write, you know, it has, has all these different infinite regressions of, of spiraling shapes, and you can zoom in as far as you want, and as long as your computer can put one more decimal point on there, you can zoom in another factor. A fractal, you can write down in an equation about that long. So that's simplicity, right? But 
mathematically they are shown and proven to be infinitely complex. So you can think of a fractal as being a beautiful, attractive picture that you can look at and hang up on a wall. Some people do hang these up on walls and in posters, but the, the, the core of it is a, is a simplicity that, that manifests itself as, as an infinite complexity, which is very unusual and kind of, kind of, uh, kind of, kind of cool. Here's one of the things that I think about when, uh, the complexity or simplicity. Um, it's been my experience that lots of us, and I put me in the us, is um, we find Jesus beautiful because he's so simple, but actually he's beautiful because he's so complex. It, it's, it's both. Uh, and the stories that we get of Jesus are typically very, very simple understandings instead of the much more complex, which to me draws, draws me in. There's more to see. There's more to learn. And it just seems beautiful that way. Um, I think back to uh, when I was in high school and I went on a study abroad trip to France. We were in southern, well, we were in southern France. We traveled into Monaco. And I remember we were kind of out late at night. And this is the first time that I kind of remember thinking that something was truly, like I had this kind of awe-inspiring moment of beauty. Um, And so we're kind of out at night. It's this clear night. There's all these stars in the sky. Um, We're kind of looking up at these sort of like craggy cliffs. And I remember saying in that moment to uh, a friend next to me who didn't believe in God, saying, I don't understand how anybody can look at this in all of its, what I kind of perceived as beautiful complexity and not believe in, in God. Um, and her response was, that's the first time that anyone has ever said something to me that actually made, that made me feel like a God may exist. Um, and then there was, there was kind of complex beauty in that as well um, but at the same time kind of in my in my own field I remember the first time I got really really clean simple data <laughs> like really clean data That's nice. <laughs> I know the, the first and maybe the only time <laughs> that I had really super clean data that was like it was a replication which is so beautiful because it was simple. It was just a clear, we had a, we had a, research, a research question with a clear answer to that question. And then we thought, well, maybe it's wrong, so we did it again, and we got almost the exact same numbers. And it was the most beautiful thing. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Well, Sharice, this is a question um, for you, so kind of as it relates to your research. Regarding facial beauty or attractiveness, many people report being attracted to people that have a high level of confidence um, compared to someone who's physically attractive but lacks confidence. What psychological effects do you think account for this? Or how do you see the connection between physical beauty and attractiveness as it relates to those sorts of qualities like confidence? Hmm. That's really interesting. Um, I'm not aware, which doesn't mean that they don't exist, but I'm not aware of any study that had particularly sort of pitted confidence against physical attractiveness or facial attractiveness. Um, I think there's lots of kind of anecdotal evidence that would suggest that those two might have an interplay with one another um, and that they probably have a very complex relationship with one another as well. Um, And so... I suspect that that probably plays in a little bit to that discussion, again, of kind of individual differences, right? So we try to quantify, oh, wait, what makes a a face attractive? But there's going to be a billion other things that might contribute to your perception of attractiveness, whether it be race or confidence or um, the size of one's eyes or so on and so forth. Um, I think there's probably many, many contributing factors, but I'm not aware of any particular research that's pitted one against the other. It's an interesting question. Great. Tim, here's a question for you. Um, you made the connection that for you, beauty is tied to joy, which is tied to struggle, which is tried, tied to meaningfulness. Um, the question is, how can you see the struggles of people experiencing something like economic oppression as beauty? Um, I don't. <clears throat> could chuckle at that but no there's there's no beating that I, I think what I'm trying to say is uh, more at a 
um, uh, at a more individual level. So the the struggle that is out there is not uh, beautiful to me. However, when people get together to attempt to change that reality and really work at it so that you arrive at a, a place where people's dignity is upheld, people enjoy being together, um, there's sufficient material resources for people to really appreciate life. So if you, if you move from a situation where there's just really struggle um, because of external situations, but when you work at that, you, you sort of, to me, you, you get these connections. So no, I don't find any beauty whatsoever in observing um, that, because actually I think we're oftentimes almost, we're certainly culturally wired to back away from when we see something like that, but maybe we're even biologically wired to back away from that. But the thing is, is that the the beauty comes in moving in that direction um, to to work together for a, for a different reality. Does that help? I think so. <laughs> so so uh, two of you have talked about things that we move away from. Sharice, you actually used the term the ugly. So I'm sort of curious, what is the opposite of beauty, and is that a meaningful category uh, for for this conversation? Or someone here actually says, is, is a lack of beauty sinful? So when, when I mentioned the study that had shown kind of brain activation in response to ugly, one of the points that was actually made in that is that it, w- it was talking about it from the perspective of both art in the form of painting um, and also music. Um, and one of the points being made was that um, that art and beauty should not be considered in a one-to-one kind of way in the sense that there may be art that is not particularly beautiful but is but is in other ways very profound for other reasons a photograph of something um, that's very very traumatic might not inherently be beautiful um, but might represent something very profound I'm sorry. Can you say the question again? I just, I just, uh, just sort of. What is the opposite of beauty, and whatever that is, is that a, like a useful, meaningful category as we're thinking about beauty? Or yeah. So I think it's really hard to think of when you're when you're kind of pitting this idea of is there some sort of universal beauty? Only if there's if you consider a universal beauty, is there then an opposite? Mm-hmm. Right. So from you know, if we accept the things that have been said about beauty of faces, then yeah, the opposite of symmetry then is asymmetry. Um, and the less symmetrical a face is, the less beautiful it will be perceived to be. Um, or the opposite of average then is going to be sort of uniqueness in the same regard. Um, so from that perspective, that would be considered what would be the opposite of beauty. Um, but from some of the, the perspectives of other research, and I think just in general, is that, again, that's failing to take into account some of the individual differences of what people would consider beautiful. Um, so if we assume that individual differences do exist, which I think is probably a pretty fair claim to make, then what one person perceives as really, really beautiful to the next person, I mean, I mean, the salt and pepper is very, very beautiful to you, and I was like, rocks, really? You know, <laughs> not realizing that it was that it was salt and pepper. Um, on the other hand, another image or another song or something like that might be perceived as very beautiful to me, but not at all to Nate. And so, from that perspective, I'm not sure that you can fairly come up with the opposite of beauty when there's so much individual variability between people. So, what are ways that each of you seek out beauty? In just in your life, like it, this could be in your field, it could be outside of your field. Think about that for a second. I can go. Um, what's really interesting is that as I was thinking about that question earlier, because I had that one in advance. Um, is I realize that as I get older, I've sort of transitioned in the sense that I used to find beauty in all things visual. 
which I think is probably in part what led me down the path of being sort of a vision scientist. Um, and just finding beauty not only in what we see, but also how we see it and how we make sense of what we see and the process by which that happens. But oddly enough, as I get older, I find myself actually finding a lot more beauty in what, in what I hear, um, less, less so than what I see. Um, I find beauty in the sound of my daughter playing with my husband. I find beauty in... Um, pieces composed by John Williams, for example. So much more than I used to. I feel like I just didn't really used to appreciate as much the kind of auditory component of beauty, whereas now that's where I feel like when, you, when I thought about the question, what do, where do I find beauty now in my life, I still find beauty in data when it exists. But um, I, I kept listing things that were very auditory in nature, and I'm not sure why. I um <clears throat> so I'm going to come back to the what's the opposite of beauty mm -hmm. because it sure. helps maybe explain a bit um one of my fields that I had in graduate school though I don't teach actually in per se in that field was on less developed countries and I'm interested in the economic well-being of people I've never had to consider that much in my own life but for all um so uh, now the way I kind of practice that is in terms of um, it's a longer story but my wife and I live in a neighborhood that is a very moderate income and we developed a nonprofit about 20 years ago and I consider the work that this nonprofit does as something that leads to beauty and so the the opposite of beauty if there is is this term called Han where people's dignity is not upheld and they're not it's not upheld at an individual level and it's not upheld according to the groups they choose to be part of and and that to me is sort of opposite i don't it, it's hard you know i don't know how to define beauty literally i i feel more comfortable saying what's beautiful to me is living in a condition of um Shalom. And so shalom is a Hebrew term. It's used in the Old Testament about 220 times. Most of the times it gets translated into English as peace, but it's a much broader concept um, than that. And so there's peace, there's justice, and not just legal justice. There's the upholding of the dignity of each person. Um, but then there's also the enjoyment of each other. And so that for me as a social scientist and what I'd like to see, that becomes beauty and the Han and the oppression and so is, is sort of the opposite of it. Yeah, it's interesting talking about the, when you talk about beauty, beauty and there's a lot of synonyms that we can associate with that too, like symmetry or, and attractiveness is something, you know, that, that of a face or something. There's a, a song we there's we our kids like to listen to music and and there's a, a, a artist called Father Goose and he's kind of a goofy guy and he has some kid song stuff and and one in one of his songs he said what is more beautiful is it a crooked tree or a straight tree and you know you're supposed to ponder that question a little bit <laughs> and then of course the answer is either one depending on which one is more in place right do you want a crooked tree or do you want a straight tree that's the one that's going to be more beautiful to you and then uh so and then you can talk about okay what's more attractive which tree do you want to go towards or in which one is it going to repulse you and go away so that's ugly versus being attractive um and i think as i've i think i have a similar experience to uh to some of the others here that um as you kind of age and, and become slightly more wise in some ways, maybe. Um, <clears throat> I, I think I, I can see beauty that connects different things where I couldn't see it before, right? Where I, I can see beauty in, you know, a law of physics that I never, never necessarily understood before, right? As, as I was studying it in graduate school and even using it in some of my research, I would, I would use these formulas and then 
somehow you can make a connection to something else, right? You can make a connection to another field or make a connection that you had never made before. And that is a, is a, is a moment of beauty where you recognize that there is something deeper than you know, that you never saw before. And that happens occasionally as you go and you keep learning about different things. Um, so that's kind of where I, where I like to see it is how can you make a connection with something that you love here and you also love over there, can you find something that connects the two and that? That's, that's why I started with the quote at the beginning from, you know, you see everything through, a, uh, you, you believe in Christianity because, we buy, because by it you see everything else, just like as the sun has risen, right? If you can see a connection to some sort of physical law, to, you know, the embodiment of Christ on earth, how, you know, that's beauty there, how, if you can make that. And, and I've, tried to think over and over again, how can, you, how can you make these connections from any discipline to the realities that we know in the Christian faith? And that's something that I've tried to think about more recently. Yeah. Well, we are, um, we are out of time, but I want to thank um, all of our guests here. I want to thank you for coming, so if we can thank our guests. Thank you.